Welcome, welcome, welcome back to another exciting episode of the 30 to Life podcast, Redefining the Black Experience. We have an amazing episode for you today, which is dedicated to the Black woman experience, because uh, we cater to you women, and we want to make sure that you know we have different perspectives on the show, and we also just get the woman's perspective on this show. So today we'll have a very special person on the show. Her name is Constant Jones. She is a San Diego native, an avid reader, and a storyteller. Yes. <laughs> I, love, I love words. Yes, so Constance is here. The 30 to Life crew is here. Before I do, what's going on with everyone right now? What's going on? How you doing? Well, I just had a baby. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, my, thank you. My wife, my wife just had a baby. And let me just say, she did a very good job. 32 hours oh my of goodness. labor. <sighs> and, you know... Mm-hmm. I have to applaud the women for just being able to just do that. Like just to sit there or lay there and just be feeling the contractions <laughs> and they're not, they're not comfortable. And then, and I, I know I didn't make it easy on, on, on her because, you know, I'm silly. So I was trying to make her laugh, but she was mad the whole time. But, you know, I just want to say my wife, if you do listen to this episode, I'm very proud of you. And, you know, thank you. Thank you for birthing my son. Oh, how sweet. <laughs> yes, childbirth is a beautiful thing. Shout out to all our Black women out there. You are the original. But how are you guys doing? I'm doing well, you know. Still trying to stay COVID-free, trying to stay away from these people where I live. Same-o, same-o. I'm and, doing well, okay. yeah. Mookie, your, 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 daughter, your daughter's birthday? Yes, she turned yeah. one. My daughter turned one. You know, she's growing up. She's, you know, trying to leave the house already you know these these newborns they just they're just trying to take over everything but you know I, I love her and you know it's a beautiful weekend with her and you know I just you know that's my baby and once she in 29 years from now she can start dating <laughs> interesting <laughs> well, congrats to your daughter happy birthday yes. and happy birthday to Donna yes yes there's a lot yes. of birthdays in August I, my older brother just turned 40, which means, man, I'm getting up there as well. <laughs> yeah, August is the best month. Second best, best mar- month is uh, March. But, you know, we, we ain't saying that now. March is the best. I'm March, baby. Oh, what's up? What's up? What's up? Pis- Pisces? Pisces? No. Pisces. Aries. Aries? Oh, so you, you late March. You late March. All right, <laughs> I'm on the cusp, though, so I, I, I got you. I got you. You, you see what happened this March, right? Um, oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> the best month is November. The best month is November. That's when the holidays start. COVID, COVID's not, COVID has any, nothing to do with the March. March, they just, COVID just okay. was targeting March, but March was just, it was racially profiled. That's what happened with March. Yes. March was just walking down the street, you know, trying to enjoy his month. And, you know, COVID just, you know, profiled and just mm-hmm. shut down the whole, whole year. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but, but yes, guys. So, yeah, Constance, we read your bio, but can you just tell, tell, us, tell us about Constance real fast? Tell the users, the, the listeners rather, give us, give us the Constance 411. Yes. yes, yes. So I am born and raised in San Diego and I am one of nine children. Wow. Uh, yeah, I'm number four. My parents were, I was saying they were married and divorced each other three times. (laughs) 
said, yes, it's crazy. But anyway, in the process, they had these nine children. And, you know, it was just a very, yeah, it was a very chaotic environment to live in. My father was an alcoholic. My mother, you know, was uh, abused. And it was just a constant struggle growing up in that environment. So I had a lot of things to overcome based on my family uh, dynamics. And one of the things that I really wanted to express to other people is that because you come from a certain past doesn't mean that that will dictate your future. And you have all the ability and all the power, um, everything that you need inside of yourself to move forward and to not let that hold you back. And, you know, as Black people, I feel that we you know, we have to work two times as hard and we have to be the best at everything. And we have to really push the whole idea of, you know, you working hard and you're going to make it, it, it really, it, it takes more than that for us. And so, you know, I thought by telling my story, I would be able to inspire other people and help them be empowered to follow their path, to know that they can do anything and to just motivate and encourage them to do more and to be better and to follow their dreams and achieve their goals. So that's why I wrote my book. And right now I, um, I work a nine to five, you know, this is my uh, side project, but you know, I work right now at Walmart. My job just uh, changed a little bit. So I'm doing more of the well-being, dealing with the mental health aspect of the, of the staff and just really, you know, making sure that we're incorporating some culture and diversity. I'm under that team now. So we're, we're tying in our mental health with that. So there are a lot of cool things that are going on with my, my day job as well. So I really feel fulfilled and I am really happy. And I just want to make sure that I am doing my part in society to give back. And I do that through my husband and I's foundation, Elevate Foundation. We give to families and nonprofits and just youth that are really needing a, a hand to get them to that next step in life. So um, we use our own funds. This year, we will have donated $100,000 in five years of our own money that we just give. And we don't just give to a black box. We actually go out there and we do the work. So we say we give to, you know, Feeding San Diego. Well, we're there and we're we're giving out the food. We're, we're stocking the shelves. We're sorting the food. If we're giving to some children for a STEM event, we're there. We're helping with them with their art projects and listening and helping the girls with their dance. Like we want to make sure that, you know, we are there and we're out actually doing our part and making a difference. And part of the reason we did that is because we both came from really not great circumstances growing up. We wanted to change that for people, for kids growing up now. And through our grief, through our miscarriages, because I have dealt with infertility and I've had five miscarriages. My husband and I don't have any children. And during our grief and our pain, we wanted to find some light in that. We wanted to find some love and some sort of fulfillment. And so we decided, you know, sometimes when you're feeling low and you're feeling down, the best thing you can do is to give to other people. I I mean, it just lifts your spirits. You're helping, you're, you're really bringing yourself out from underneath all that darkness. And so we grieved, but we also decided to give back and that's where Elevate was founded. So, so I got a lot going on there. Um, I know there's like a lot of impact and uh, unpack with my life, but that's a, just a overall kind of where I am right now and where I come from. An amazing story. An amazing story. Yeah. 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 We appreciate all that you do, all that you and your husband do. The need is there, mm-hmm. you know, the need is there. And especially as black people, we kind of, like you said, we need that, we need that extra I guess, push or that extra amount of energy to kind of succeed because 
we, we do have these barriers and uh, social injustice is real. Is. And uh, we have to really help each other out to overcome. Awesome. So can we start off with epilepsy? Yes. Right? So you, you mentioned epilepsy purposefully. Yes. Why? Because I have epilepsy. I was diagnosed when I was 15 years old. No one in my family has it. So it was something that was just kind of out of the blue. Most people don't know a lot about epilepsy. I didn't know. All I knew was seizures. People have seizures. And I didn't learn more about it until I was diagnosed. And I just happened to be at work. I was at a you know, a youth at work program for disadvantaged youth one summer and I'm working. And the next thing I know I'm on the ground and I'm having like a full-blown seizure and wake up in the hospital. It was definitely something that is really, really scary. I felt alienated from people. I felt alone. My parents, they didn't know anything about it either. And I mean, they didn't really look into it after I had it. It was just kind of like, okay, well, what do we need to do? And you know, she's okay. She's going to get through this. And it, it was basically, they, I got, they gave me my medication, trial and error. I got stable and life went on. And so I never really got to deal with any of those issues, you know, and really talk about those things. And so I wanted to be a beacon of light, you know, especially for people of color who may be dealing with epilepsy to have somewhere to go and someone to talk to about it and to let other people know, to educate, but to also give them a glimpse of what it's like to have epilepsy. So I describe a lot of what I went through and, and give you an idea of the experience of what it's like being someone that has it. So it's definitely a part of who I am. It's something that, you know, is a lifelong thing for me. Thank God I've been seizure free for almost 10 years now. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Congrats. Thank you. That's the- that's, oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. I want to explore that though. So how? Because I mean, I, I work in, I, I worked in an emergency room and I mean, I've kind of dealt with people with seizures or epilepsy in the past. And you know, it's, and then having had one seizure myself, I will say that you wake up tired and exhausted and then just, just drained. So I can't empathize with having epilepsy, but I, I can sympathize with having a seizure. Mm-hmm. But I said, I said that to say like, you know, what did you do to, to, to not have one in 10 years? So basically, you know, I went through a lot of doctors between, I would say from 15 all the way up until about 28. I had a lot of different doctors and it's weird because I would be doing fine once they found a good combination for me. I was fine with that, you know, that drug and the doses and all that for a good five years. And then all of a sudden, I would start have seizures again, like out the blue. So I'd be like, you know, dry, like I had my license, I was working, I was in college, you know, I'm doing all these things and my life is really stable. And then all of a sudden I have a seizure and then everything stops. So I can't drive and I have to take the bus or I have to rely on family and friends to drop me off. Like my parents weren't, my mom wasn't really, I didn't like that I lived alone because what happens if I have a seizure when I'm by myself and I'm I showering and I fall on the glass? You know what I mean? Like thinking about all of the things you don't, you take for granted every day. But ultimately I found a doctor when I was 28, I went to UCSD and he was actually the the head of that um, the neurology um, program there. And because of my history, he just took really good care of me. He was from Spain. He just knew so much. I had PhDs, all that good stuff, right? And he just really worked with me. And it was like one of the first doctors that I had that really listened to me, talked to me, uh, followed up with me. And, you know, I, w- I was going through things in my personal life. And he would sit there and listen. And talk to me. And I, I'd never had that with a doctor before in my life. So I 
give it to him for finding a, a good balance for me. But also, you know, you have to, one of the things with epilepsy is that, you know, if you're tired all the time, you're not getting enough rest. If you're drinking too much, if you're, you know, having too much caffeine, if you're not living a healthy lifestyle, all of those things play a part into you, you know, having seizures. So I had to really be aware of, you know, how I take care of myself because that will contribute. I couldn't do all nighters in college, you know, because if I did, I'd wake up and I'd have a seizure. So combination of drugs, taking care of yourself, and then, you know, trusting that God's going to get you through it. But yeah, you got to do your part. Yes, that's cool. That's great. Yeah. And, and a couple of things that, that you also pointed it out earlier was that your parents were divorced and married three times. And also your father was an alcoholic. Can you, can you just like talk through one, like what was that like growing up and, you know, how you overcame and, it yeah. and, and how did you overcome it? So growing up, I had to grow up really fast because of that. My father was in and out of the house. You know, he would come home, get my mom pregnant and then be gone like the following year. And so this was like a pattern throughout my childhood. And because I was the fourth eldest in my family, I had five siblings underneath me. I had to be an adult, basically. I didn't get a childhood. I had to, you know, be cooking. I remember cooking spaghetti on a stool at the stove because my mom was pregnant and she couldn't do it for the family. I, uh, my brother and I, we used to grocery shop. I was seven. He was nine. My mom was pregnant in the car. She couldn't take all his kids in there. So we would take the list tear it in half. I go to one side of the store, he goes to the other side of the store and we would meet at the, at the, at the cashier and do all the grocery shopping for months when my mom was having a difficult pregnancy. So just not having, having so much responsibility and not being able to go outside and play as a kid, not being able to do things that kids do. Um, I had to grow up really, really fast. And that caused a lot of resentment, right? Against my parents, because I'm like, I'm a kid. Why do I have to be responsible for getting my sisters ready in the morning or cooking dinner or, you know, not being able to go out and hang out with my friends? Like, I didn't have these kids. It's not my fault. You know what I mean? So then I built up a lot of anger and resentment against my mom and my dad because he wasn't there most of the time. When he was, he was causing issues. So I internalized a lot of those things and I didn't really talk to anyone about it because no one talks about it. So I ended up being really depressed a majority of my childhood. And then when I got to age 14, I kind of hit a breaking point. My father was coming back after having been gone for several years. I felt like our family had got our footing. We were doing okay. And then he's back again. And there's nothing I can do. I couldn't control it. We were already, had already been through so much. And to start that process all over again, I just was like, I can't do this. I can't go through this again. So I almost committed suicide at 14. And so, you know, my brother stopped me, thank God. But from that point on, I had to realize that I couldn't allow my environment to dictate everything that, you know, that I don't want to live this life. So what can I do to change myself and to change my circumstances, control what I can control, you know, at 14 and 15. And, and that was me finding, you know, counselors to talk to. That was me combining in friends. That was me um, hanging out with one of my older cousins. Like and I read a lot. I read so much. That's why I think I, you know, I was able to write a book because as a kid, like it was my only way to escape is to like read and just like absorb and be somewhere else. And so those are the things that I use to kind of to cope 
and to get me through growing up in that in that environment. But as an adult, you know, all those things are subconsciously, you have all that stuff back there, all that gunk. And if you don't deal with it, you could you end up repeating those same cycles that your parents did, or you go the, the, the opposite end and create a different extreme. So I had to really work through some of those things and I worked through it through uh, being in, you know, bad relationships, but also going to therapy and just really taking care of myself. But yeah, it took a lot. It took a lot of work, internal work for me to be able to let go of that resentment, forgive my parents, to set standards for what I wanted in my life and to really go for those things. And it took a while because I never really, no one taught me those things. So I learned a lot along the journey. Yes, that's a question for you. Do you think those, all those medicine cases that you had, those, those traumatic experiences, do you think that affected you within as well, like physically? Yeah. And you know, sometimes I wonder like with epilepsy, because I got that the the following year, like, did it have something to do with the way my body chemistry was? Because I was so depressed and I was so, you know, all over the place. And, you know, I think a lot of times your mental state, you know, it can like they say with cancer, a lot of things you, they, that will affect you physically when you're dealing with a lot of mental challenges. And so I, I don't know, I think, I think it could have played a role into having that develop within myself. I don't know, but, but I definitely, I, I was dealing with some stuff and it probably manifested in the way that it did. I would have to say yes. The one time I did have a seizure, I remember I was in college and um, I was just about to graduate and I, and I was just it was stats. It was a stats class. And I was like, damn, I really didn't really study hard for the test, but I, I knew that I wanted to pass. So I just, I just studied for it, whatever, whatever. But I didn't really go in as much as I could have. Anyway, long story short, I got a bad grade back. And I was like, damn. <laughs> so, I'm, so I'm like, damn, am I going to graduate? Anyway, next thing I know, I'm waking up off the floor. <laughs> I got I got a scratch on my face and, um, and I urinated on myself, right? Mind you, this is in college. So mm-hmm. everybody surrounding me called the ambulance and all that good stuff. Mm -hmm. But it was stress induced, (laughs) basically. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the times I feel, I feel a lot of our physical ailments are the result of stress Mm -hmm. or stress Mm surge that we put on our bodies. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting because, you know, I'm thinking, I'm I'm listening to you speak and I'm thinking about your your experiences and then how that kind of translated into your health, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I would to answer your question, Coolia, I would say absolutely. Yeah, I really believe that your physical or mental stressors stressors can kind of reflect on your physical. Absolutely. Agree. Mm -hmm. And and that's Mm -hmm. why when I hear your story, I believe that all that stuff that's going on outside affected you inside. And that's like and it's amazing that you hear things like this and you, you, you don't realize a person struggles until you actually hear their stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And one of the and things we kind of preach on the Little Life podcast is basically finding who you are, mm-hmm. being becoming self-aware. And um, that's a, a lifelong journey, but it's a journey nonetheless. Absolutely. And it takes time. It takes time, but it also... But the first step is really recognizing that you need to take the journey and that you need to grow. It's super interesting. I mean, life, life is interesting in general, but it's just like mind-blowing. Yeah. It really is. It really is. Life is a journey. And, you know, I wouldn't say that where I am now, like, oh, I've just overcome everything and my life is perfect and I'm doing, you know, everything well. It's everything is a lifelong journey. You know, you're always growing, you're always learning, you're, it's just a process and it's going to continue to be so, you know, that's, that's part of life. 
Yes, that's definitely one thing that I, 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 one of my sayings, you learn something new every day, no matter how small it is or how big it is. And you learn from the many people that you meet. So you learn the story, you learn, it might be very small, but you learn something new every single day from somebody, somewhere, something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, and thinking of learning something new every day, you know, now that, you know, I have a daughter that's one you know, while my wife was pregnant, you know, I learned a, a lot of things in terms of one was uh, miscarriages, right? Just speaking to a lot of my friends and I had no clue because it was something that, like you mentioned, we don't talk about. So can you talk a little bit more about uh, your, your miscarriages and, and the journey along the way for you? Yeah, absolutely. So I've had five miscarriages. The first one I had, I lost within the second month. So it was a really quick pregnancy, that one. The second pregnancy, and that one, I just had a miscarriage. There was no, it just happened. The second time, you know, I got further along and I thought everything was going to be okay. And then I lost it again. And so, you know, talking to the doctor, I was asking him, you know, does, does epilepsy play a role? You know, is it the medication I'm taking? Like what, what's happening with my body? And they said, oh, it's normal. It happens, you know, it's, you know, it happens all the time. So, you know, go ahead and try again. It should be fine. Your third pregnancy should be fine. And when I had, I got pregnant again and I got all the way up to 12 weeks thinking that everything's okay. I get to the point where I can start telling people and all of a sudden I start bleeding and I call my doctor and I said, Hey, you know, this is what's happening. You know, should I come in? And she said, no, just wait for your next appointment. As long as you're not bleeding, you know, heavily, you should be fine. But I knew my body and I knew something didn't feel right, but you know, she's the doctor. So I listened and I went about my way. And then, you know, within a few days I was out shopping. I got dizzy got some cramps, saw blood running down my leg. And the next thing I know is I wake up in the hospital. I lost the baby. I had hemorrhaged and it could have been prevented possibly. I I don't know if I would have went in and got seen, but I didn't because I listened to the doctor. And so I feel like that experience in itself taught me that I needed to be an advocate for myself when it moving forward within the, the health system. But my fourth pregnancy, this was the one that I think that I talk about the most because it was they were all traumatic, but this one was the most traumatic for me because I got to 19 weeks and, you know, I really, you know, I was showing, my body was changing and I felt everything. And, you know, I thought this would be the one time that it, I would actually go through the whole pregnancy and end up with my baby. And I did it. The baby ended up having um, hydrocephalus, which is like a fluid in the brain. And the doctor said that we should terminate the pregnancy because the baby would have a lot of different issues with their health. And I mean, basically, he said there would be a lot of issues. It was a white doctor, and he just passed a paper to me, my husband, with a list of things. And I'm like, okay, like there was no empathy, there was no compassion, there was just like, you should, you should probably medically abort, and this is why. And he was like, well, you can get a second opinion if you want, but you know, they're gonna tell you the same thing. So that's the way we received that 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 message. So it was one of the hardest things that you know I had to do because. Before all of my miscarriages, they, they happened and I didn't have a choice. This one, you know, the baby was there, was living, but it wouldn't have lived a, a good life and the quality of life for them and quality of life for us. So we had to make a choice. And so we chose to end the pregnancy, but, you know, we ended our, our baby's life. 
And how do you live with that? I thought it was a girl. They told us at that ultrasound was a girl. So I'm knowing like, I have to kill my daughter. She's in there, her heart's beating, you know, all of that. And I wouldn't wish that choice on my worst enemy because it was the most, uh, it was the most, the hardest thing I've yeah, been wow. there. Yeah. Yeah. And we tried again about a year later and um, that one ended very early as well. So, so we decided that we weren't going to uh, try anymore, that we were going to turn our grief into something positive. And um, that's why we created our foundation. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing story. Speechless. Actually, um, um, that's really touched. Question for you. Do you feel like black women are at a disadvantage when it comes to the American healthcare system? Like you, you mentioned that, you know, you felt like the doctors didn't, weren't listening to you and the doctors weren't empathetic. And I mean, me being in the healthcare industry, I understand that, you know, black women have a higher mortality rate when it comes to childbirth and all that stuff. So we also don't talk about that enough. Can you just like shed light? <laughs> yes. So yes, it's true for black women, you know, most women, I would say, you know, they're pregnant and they're thinking like, oh, I just, you know, I just hope my baby is, is healthy, you know, but for a black woman, you have to think like, okay, I hope my baby is healthy, but I also have to pray that I survive the delivery so I can live to, to take care of this child. And who should have to think that, you know what I mean? Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it delivering this child? And the reason why is because black women are three to four times more likely to die during delivery or within the early postpartum phase because they hemorrhage or they have excessive bleeding. And these are things that are very, very preventable. But oftentimes we are not, you know, doctors don't consider us a priority. They minimize our, our pain. And then they also, you know, it's the systematic racism within the healthcare care system alone is it's solely so deep rooted that people have these unconscious biases that they don't even know that they have. And so how do you begin to address that when they don't even know they have it? So there's, there's so many things that are going to need to happen to help with this. But one of the things I tell people now knowing, you know, the stats, because I didn't know that until recently that we were three to four times more likely to die during delivery. I, it, I was, I was shocked. So, and I've been dealing with infertility and looking and reading and finding out, you know, different things. And that was the first summer I heard anything about it. So imagine all the women that are pregnant that, that don't know. There are so many. I'm, uh, it's crazy. But yeah, the healthcare system, they put it, we're at a disadvantage. And the only way for us to really advocate for ourselves is to ask questions, to find doctors that, you know, we feel that we can trust. And the way that we do that is by going in, talking to them, saying, hey, what's your response? You know, time if I email you or call you, you know, how do you feel about me deciding to do my birth, you know, home birth? Or if I decide I don't want a cesarean, I want to do it without, like all of those things, you have to understand that your doctor should be on your side. They should you should be able to voice what you want and they be able to deliver it for you. And if you're not getting that, then you don't go with that doctor. Because I've read of stories where women who, who said things and in the end they stayed with the doctor and then end up dying during delivery or ended up, you know, having a stroke or, or, or different things. Like there's so many things that happen because we don't listen to ourselves and our intuitions, knowing that the healthcare system is really not on our side. 
Yes. So true. I mean, I mean, me knowing this, like, so for instance, my, my, my wife just gave birth last week. And, um, you know, that was really in the back of my head the entire time. I was like, well, my wife's a black woman. <laughs> and I know black women have a higher mortality rate yeah. during childbirth. And it, like, you know, so just just the emotions, even even though I was I was, you know, maintaining my strength in front of my wife, because I know she was vulnerable at, during that time. But me knowing these things and I, I really had to like really psych myself up because I know I was scared. I mean, to put it frank, I was scared. I mean, because I, <laughs> I know what could have happened, you know? So, and, you know, it's just, it's, it does, it's, it's sad. It's sad that not, not a lot of us know these things. And me being a nurse, like I kind of know what to look out for, but if I didn't, what would have happened? Or if I didn't, like, how, how do I know they would treat me as well as they did mm-hmm. If if they if they knew I was just a regular Joe Small on the street just because yes. of the color of our skin, mm-hmm. I don't I don't feel like we as black people we kind of talk about that enough. Yeah, and I I I I feel like we can kind of utilize this show to kind of educate people in a, in a way mm-hmm. with, to look out for certain things. Just like you said, you know, if the doctor doesn't give you times to call him, and you're not okay with those times, then you should go with a doctor someone else right or just or if they're not listening to you like i like i i can i i have experienced doctors just not listening to Mm -hmm. patients Mm -hmm. i see it (laughs) you know i've saw it so you know it's it's really time to kind of like expose that and like just 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 educate ourselves really just go into it educating yourself yeah and there are a lot of groups too that can help there's like definitely some support groups what is it Black Mamas Matter. There are a few others that you can go to and they have like lots of resources on their sites where you can educate yourself and also find support groups and just help you to to get through that. Yes, definitely. I, I definitely think that conversation has to be had. We should be able to, as Black people in, in general, we should be able to make our doctors go crazy because that's their job. We're paying them for a service. is that's to take care of us. If I don't know something mm-hmm. about my body, I'm not scientifically able to say, hey, I should be taking this or doing that. That's what the doctors were. We should be able to find those doctors to say, hey, no matter what, you give me a call. And as you said, you feel something that's wrong with yourself. We should be able to say, like, doctor, I know my body. I'm feeling right. I'm not feeling right. And the doctor should be able to tell us, listen, just go in. We should have that patient patient doctor come to that that connection where I can ask you whatever I need to because the body, uh, we need to take care of our bodies. And that the only way you can really do it is if we're asking the doctors and they, on it, they're, they're telling us they're supposed to like be our friends and somewhat to tell us no matter what, what or when. Yeah. And one thing that I recommend that me and my wife did was, you know, we interviewed doctors, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, just like any other place you go to or a job, right? Their job is to take care of us. So we got to interview, make sure that we want them for the job. So we you know, met with several doctors until we found one that we were comfortable with because, you know, this, you know, life or death matter, right? You, you stated, you know, black women are three to uh, four times more likely to experience pregnancy-related deaths and even like infertility, right? We're, we're two times, almost two times compared to white women. And we're, we're half as likely to go get help for that. So I think it, it's just important that, you know, we are advocates for ourselves, like you said, but also, you know, you know, taking the extra step to not just go with that first doctor that we come come by, because I think it's just a natural thing that sometimes we do just with everything. But it's more of like do the extra research, talk to other patients, figure out are they do they understand like the black experience? Because if they don't know these numbers, then I don't think you should have them as, as mm-hmm. they shouldn't be your doctor as well. 
But exactly. one thing I want you I want you to talk about is why don't the conversations that that you're talking about, like miscarriage or pregnancy related deaths, or even just the trauma of going through pregnancy, why isn't it talked about, especially amongst our community? How troubling these statistics are, and and we don't talk about it. I think there's definitely a lot of shame when it comes to infertility especially in the black community because we have always been looked at as you know a fertile go if you take it all the way back to like slavery you know we were having babies having babies you know and up until this point you know and i know it's been going on for quite some time but no one in my family is infertile everybody who wanted to have a baby had a baby so you know seeing that or seeing my friends have babies and then knowing that i can't have one i feel ashamed i feel like you know my body has betrayed me i feel like you know i'm not a whole woman that i don't want to tell anybody because i'm alone in this there's something wrong with me why can't i do this so there are a lot of emotions going on inside when you're dealing with something like this and you know you don't often want to tell anyone else you don't you want to deal with it on, on your own and find your own path. And sometimes that's not doing anything, just continually to struggle through it. Where now I think more women are willing to go to the doctor and talk about it. It's still very low. Like you said, like two times more, more likely not to even do anything about it. Because I think of those, those thoughts around us being fertile and, you know, it's not affecting our community because it is affecting our community. And then just talking about miscarriages or infidelity as a woman, you know, for me, I didn't, after I lost my third, after I lost my second pregnancy, I didn't tell anyone I was pregnant with that third pregnancy until I was like right up to that 12 week mark because I didn't want to talk too early because I knew it might happen again. And then I didn't want to have to face people and tell them, oh, I lost it again. And, you know, they got excited for me. And then, and then I lost it again. And then have to explain that and why it did happen. And everybody asking me the same questions over and over and over while I'm trying to grieve and get through this. So at some point, you know, I think for me, I just got tired of answering those questions and I was ashamed and I was embarrassed because I, I wasn't able to do it. And then also it brings up a lot of the pain and the emotions when you're talking through that. So I didn't want to continue to relive it every five minutes. So that's another reason why I, I didn't tell a lot of people. And then when it came to that fourth pregnancy where I was 19 weeks, again, I didn't, we didn't even tell our parents until gosh, like it was fourth month, maybe. We waited as long as we could because we didn't want to let anyone down or have to face face people after having something like that happen to you because, you know, you get the questions like, how are you doing? Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And those are all good and well, and thank you. But when you're going through that, that's not what you want to hear. And I think that's one of the reasons why people don't, don't talk about it. At least for me, that was one of the reasons I didn't. Is, um, something that you just said about people speaking to you, and I think one thing that I really want to want to be changed by hearing your story is people to ask that question. Oh, why aren't you? You don't have a baby yet, or why haven't you had a baby? And that nobody knows the the depths of somebody's journey, and just asking that question could really lead to pain. People mm-hmm. think, oh, you just because you're a certain age, you should have a baby by then, but with conversations like yours they story yeah but conversations like yours and letting people know it's like hey we should that's not not meaning to be hurtful you really can't so that question i really think people should understand it's not okay to ask anymore 
just like it's not okay to assume a woman's pregnant. Yeah, you know? exactly. That, that, that could really get you in a lot of trouble. Yeah. <laughs> I did that when I was in high school once, and it was a substitute teacher, and I was like, "How far along are you?" She was like, "I'm not pregnant." I was like, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry." Yeah, it could like 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 yeah, it could work and definitely work in both ways. You shouldn't that question should be eliminated because once you start hearing so many of these stories, it's like, wow, maybe that's why. Maybe when I answer that, that's that's why she looked at me crazy. Mm-hmm, it's not just mm-hmm. because she's not with it. That's the, and I think that's where more conversations of, especially people of color, need to be had about the traumas that we have and because we don't see everything and we don't have that conversation. No one would ever know. And I think right, it's, exactly. it's a lack of it's a lack of education on our part by not just speaking. And I want to praise you by speaking so that women who are going through this situation can finally speak up because now the mental health is becoming a popular thing, well, popular is not the word, but a more avid thing, it helps us get to what we've been through. Because if you don't know it, it's just going to keep going. It's going to keep perpetuating the cycle. So that's great that you're having this conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I definitely think that it's important that people understand what what parameters, you know what I mean? Like what's okay to say, not to say that, you know, we're mm-hmm. giving people permission to say this or that, but just to be as part of you being compassionate and empathetic with people, then, you know, just educating yourself by knowing like, hey, you know, if I do have friends, you know, that, and they do tell me, you know, what's happened to them, like, what should I say? Because some people are afraid to to ask people about it. So then they mm-hmm. just ignore it completely. You know what I mean? Or they, you know, they say what they think is something that's helpful and it ends up being hurtful. So what I tell people is just to, if they're trying to support someone who's been going through that, I say, you know, you call them, say, I'm thinking about you. I care about you. Do you need anything? Do you want to talk about anything? If not, do you want to go get a coffee? Do you want to go on a run? Like, you know what I mean? Like, just think of different things that aren't all centered towards, you know, oh my gosh, you're feeling so bad. I'm so sorry. You know, like think of different ways that you can help that person. And by just asking them, what do you need from me? Then that just opens it up. And they might say, yeah, I just, I just want someone to go, go get a cup of coffee and chat and think about something else. You know, it doesn't always have to be someone that sits there and, and you vent and cry. And there are other ways to like, to get through some of those things. That's what I tell people. Ask them for what they need. Yes, and then kind of off topic, sort of. I remember this guy, this guy was at the store having a conversation with me and he was telling me that his wife is sick, but he would just continue to talk about whatever. I don't know what he was talking about, but I realized then that that guy just needed a friend and me just having regular conversation with him probably helped his day. So uh, not just asking him about his wife or nothing, just asking about the, the grass business he had. He was mentioning Shaq and all this other stuff. And that's something I wanted, or my son was there. So that's one of the things I wanted to show to him is like, sometimes somebody just needs an ear. So mm-hmm. it's good to listen. It's always those context, those, those context clues that people give off. It's like, I'm struggling today. I just need someone to talk to. Again, that's why conversations need to be had now. And, you know, going back to what you said about people asking, like, why you don't have kids. Like, we hear it all the time. I think less now because I've been more vocal about it. But we used to get asked that all the time. And, I mean, we still do. I guess with new people we meet, new couples that we might hang out with, they always ask, oh, you you two are such a beautiful couple. When are you going to have a baby? You know, have someone that looks like you. You know, why don't you have any kids yet? And, and you know, and then you have to go into the whole story. And I think 
if people learn not to ask those questions, then that the awkwardness, because it's like, everybody doesn't want to hear that story. You know what I mean? They, they just want you to say like, Oh, not yet. And keep it, you know, but it's like, okay, well we tried and this is what happened. And then, then it's like a totally different conversation. Not to say that you can't have those conversations, but yeah, you know, I think, yeah. It could bring a lot of issues when you ask that. And yeah. like I said, I think it's a case that really everybody can be guilty of and it, it, they don't mean any harm by it, but just that simple question caused so it can bring back so many memories and so much trauma. Mm-hmm. So I guess what would your advice be to the to the young lady out there who's lost, looking for a start? I mean, because like I said, like we said earlier, it, it was a journey, right? Mm-hmm. So, but we have to we have to have a starting point. So, how did you start, or what would your recommendation for that lost young lady out there that's just trying to make it you know mm-hmm. how would they start well i would say first you have to do some internal work to find out like hey you know who am i what do i want in life and how am i going to get there and what is holding me back from getting there and once you address the things that are holding you back then you're able to propel yourself forward but that takes a lot of time right because our past has dictated to where we are up until the point that we decided to put in the work to change things. And so you have to go back and really deal with some of those things that you've been with, been going through. And, you know, I did that by, you know, therapy, by journaling, by meditating, by spending time with myself, surrounding myself with positive people and inspiring myself through the things that I saw that I wanted. And so, you know, I read a lot of self-help books, you know, I got into meditation, I decided to live a more healthy lifestyle. So all of those things contributed to me being able to put one step in front of the other. But I had to start with me and see where where I am. How did I get here? And how, where do I want to be? And how am I going to go that way? I love self-help books. I love them. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Question to kind of piggyback off that. As black men, what especially black men with with partners, married, would, how do you suggest that we can help you guys be to get through things like such as like this? What do you recommend? Because I know for me, if I was in that situation, I wouldn't know what to do. And men, as men, we probably can ask some of the dumbest questions, like, "Uh, how do you feel now?" <laughs> so, what can men do to help women? Um, overall or in the, in the, in the situation, overall. like, yes. Like what though? Like what, what specifically, what situations? Like even dealing with the miscarriages are to, to okay. understand your, oh, okay. to under, because again, we can't understand your body like you do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So what can we um, do to help you? Because again, like I said, we can ask the dumbest question at the time we shouldn't. So, yeah, you know, my husband and I, we've had the two miscarriages together, you know, he was very supportive. You know, he asked me what I needed from him and how he could help me. And so, you know, when you're deep in grief, though, you don't always know what you need or what you want. And so sometimes you just need to cry. Sometimes you just need to be alone and have, you know, your own space. And so I think men can be supportive by doing what they, their, their partner says that they need at the time. And I think that's a great guideline to go to go ask. Just ask. Ask what you need. Yes. Okay. All right. right, Yeah. Yeah. That's what I did. Right. 
I asked you what you needed when you were when you were on uh, the bed. Sorry, yeah. well, I forgot we're live. <laughs> my my wife was she was what? How old was my kid? Nine. So it was a long ago, but I remember that was the only time where I my wife was like really strong, and that was the only time I had ever 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 really seen her. I probably seen her cry together, been together ten times. Probably seen her cry three times. And I like, but wow. one of those times was during her pregnancy, and when she's, I'm like, this really changes your body. This is something that I wish. I'm glad I'm not a woman. You guys are strong. Yes, and if you're in a situation where you're in a relationship, and you know you lose a baby, oh, a baby, a baby, <laughs> you know, for for my my husband, you know, men and women grieve in in different ways. And I think it, it's, a lear- it's a learning you have to go through because my husband, you know, he would see me crying and being sad and not knowing what to do or how to help me or feeling like, you know, after a couple of weeks, I should, you know, I should be okay. And that, you know, he's able to go back to work. He went back to work immediately, started living, you know, just going back as, you know, it didn't happen. It, that's what I thought. You know, how can you go do that? And I'm here and I'm, I'm stuck here. You know, I haven't progressed to that level yet. But, you know, that could have just been an escape for him. That could have been, you know, a distraction so that he's not there. I want to say wallowing, but, you know, in that space, because if we were both in that space, that wouldn't have been good either, right? We need someone that, that can go, you know, steer the ship while, you know, someone is grieving. So, but initially that really kind of hurt me because I was like, D- aren't you sad? Like, you know, you're not here like grieving with me. You're going and doing all these things. Why aren't you sad? And he's like, I am sad, but you know, I still have to go about and live my life. And then I felt like sometimes he didn't understand why I was sad and why I was, wasn't progressing in the matter that I should have been. But it's because for me, and I think as women as a whole, it's not just the mental, the heart loss. It's like physical right? You're going through all of these physical changes at the same time. So, you know, I was so far along progressing that pregnancy that, you know, I had milk coming in and, you know, after the miscarriage, I had, you know, I had the belly still, I had all of these things that have changed in my body and now they have to revert back. So going through that experience, it was not just the mentally and not just the heartbreak. It was, it was physically. And I think that's the one thing that men, can't really understand is that is that piece and so just having him be understanding and explaining that whether he could relate to an extent yes but you know you'll never know that the extent is how far it go how far it goes but but yeah we just read differently and you know it takes time yeah yeah it's a, it's the constant reminder being there mm-hmm. right seeing it where you know guys always you know uh second hand to it so it's you know it's like you know, for us, it's much easier to, you know, just disconnect from it or, you know, hide it or, you know, naturally, I think with our emotions, we just subdue them a a lot of times where, um, you know, I think, I think it's important to uh, show your emotions during the time with your significant other. So they know they're not in it alone. I know Mm -hmm. it's easier for us just to cope by, you know, not addressing it. But I think in, in addition to finding out what you know, someone needs, you know, mm-hmm. your significant needs, it's important that you let them know, communicate how you feel about mm-hmm. everything. Even if it, you think it's out of your comfort zone, right? Just get uncomfortable, Absolutely. get uncomfortable and let yeah. them know, hey, like, you know, I cry in, in the car, you know, when you're not around, right? And, yeah, right. And I think that'll help, right? When, when it, yeah. it's help, I know it's tough, yeah. but, 
you know, I think you need to be transparent with her because, you know, she's, when she's, when you're not around, like, you know, she probably going through her worst, worst moments. Right. And Mm -hmm. if she knows you're doing, going through that too, you know, just, it gives to a different level of, you know, intimacy when when it comes to that. Mm -hmm. That's true. And we also did therapy. Mm. That was another thing. Yeah. 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 We're we're redefining the black experience. (laughs) This is, this, this is, this is what it takes. It takes conversations between men and women, black men and women and Mm -hmm. having those, those tough conversations, like you said, but with, Mm -hmm. with hopes to resolve and bridge the gaps and, Yes, legacies. Because yes. definitely, if this gener- if this generation can do it, we, it will definitely pass on to the next generation. Because that's what we're here for—to make that next generation better. Well, I'm here to get yes. paid, not something. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that too. That's part of your legacy, <laughs> right? Building, le- building legacies, helping others along the way. Yes, I, I like it. There you go. There yes. you go. <laughs> but but yeah, I wanted to pivot a little bit. We didn't re- we didn't get into the details of emerging butterfly your yes. uh, debut book. So tell us a little bit about that. Tell us about the process and, and like tell the listeners like what are some of the things they can get out of it in terms of in uh, uh, how it relates to journeys that you know other people go through. So Emerging Butterfly, I decided to write it because of the, the many challenges I went through um, through my life and the way my process, my process, but also, you know, showing them the result. If you put in the work, this is, and not, and I'm not saying like, Hey, you know, I got it all together and things are great, but you know, I'm so far from where I was because I went on this journey and I learned all of these things. And these are some of the tools that I use to help me move along in my journey. So I talk about, you know, a lot of what we discussed today about, you know, growing up in that dysfunctional family and how I was able to find a way to flourish and grow even being within that environment. And then also, you know, the importance of mental health when it comes to depression and and what did I do to get me through those things. So I go through everything that we've discussed today, plus more, but I hope, my hope at the end of the book is for women to see that, you know, that they can make it, that they're not alone. Your circumstances do not do not define who you are. And, you know, there, there are things that you need to do in order to get ahead. And that's like, and one of the main things people don't, I don't think feel are important is forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like you can't, you can't get, you can't move past your pain and past your anger unless you forgive the people that hurt you in the past. And so I think that's so important. If I get give anyone any advice, is that's where where the where you start with that work because that will help you to let go and shed all of that pain and be able to live in the light. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely hard to move forward with all the weight on your shoulders, you know, mm-hmm. and sometimes you just need to free yourself mm-hmm. of past, you know, traumas, past events that, you know, like you said, do not define you and, and you, you learn from it, you move on and you grow and, you know, it's, it's important, like yourself, Constance, that, you know, you're telling your story, you're owning your story and you're helping others along the way while, mm-hmm. you know, you continue to become a butterfly, right? Um, yes, you, know, you, yes. you had those moments of a, a cocoon, you know, you broke uh-huh. out of your shell, you, yeah. and now you're starting to fly mm-hmm. or you are flying now and yes. more people can see you, right? You're telling yes. your story, people are seeing that. So I just yes. saw that, that image and I, I actually, I saw the cover of your book. So 
it's a beautiful cover, by the way. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you know, uh, the cocoon and the darkness, you know, and the butterfly, you know, come to life in the light. But all that struggle in between getting there, it's not easy to go in that cocoon. They got to struggle to get out of that sucker, you know. Yeah. It's a lot of struggle. I read a story about the butterfly and the, the transformation that it makes to become a butterfly. And Mm -hmm. when I read it, I was like, this story really resonates with me because I can see that there is power in the struggle. But, you know, those struggles are what helps us just transform into the most beautiful butterfly that we can be. And I do a lot of talks on like, you know, owning who you are. And it's so important that you embrace, you know, your past but also use that as a thing, as something to catapult you into the future. So you take all those, all that pain and all that trauma and all that dysfunction and you say, okay, what am I going to do to change it? And then you change it and you change the world. That is awesome. <laughs> yeah. Thank yeah. You. Thank, thank you. Thank, thank you. you for, you know, just sharing your story. It's definitely going to empower others and motivate others to own their today and really uh, fail fell forward, right? I think, mm-hmm. I think, you know, Absolutely. we all have gone through, you know, experiences and, you know, we have to learn from them and, and take Definitely. one step forward. Like the, the journey of our life is, you know, miles ahead, right? But the only way to get forward is really to take, you know, one step exactly. in front of the order of the other and uh, move forward. Absolutely. Definitely. Like, so, I, like I said before, 2020, 2020 is the year of the conversation, even with this COVID. It, it gave us that time now to sit down and talk, which one of the things I think yes. as millennials we're missing because with all this technology, we're just going about our lives. Nobody is really sitting down and having these conversations that really should have been had generations before us. Now that we're being, everything was so quick and now we've been shut down. And it forced to talk to each other and forced to see all these crazy things. We're really unlearning yes. a lot of stuff about us and because of conversations and we need to talk, mm-hmm. talk more. Yeah. Definitely yeah. agree. Agree. Agreed. Yeah. So, so, you know, I really, we really enjoyed this conversation, Constance. Thank you for joining us. Any last words, any last takeaways, you know, I really at the end of every episode, you know, we definitely want, you know, some actionable things for people to do, you know, people who are going through depression, people who are going through miscarriage, people who are going through infertility, you know, what are some things that they can do today, you know, just to really address it and and really, you know, become better than they were the day day before? I would say start with, with taking some time for yourself and journaling. I think that's a great start to just get out your feelings, find out what's really going on inside. And once you find out what's going on inside, then you can figure out, you know, what step I need to take to get me to the, put that one foot in front of the other. What's, what's going to take, but until you know where you're at and really get all of that, that junk out, then you won't be able to do that. And so I think that's the first thing you got to look inside write it down and then, you know, take it from there. But for some people who may have already done that and they're like, okay, I'm, I'm dealing with infertility right now. I'm, I'm sad. And I, you know, I don't know what to do. Then, you know, find resources. There's so many resources online that you can find to where there are support groups for women that are going through everything that you're going through. And you can 
talk to them and you can learn more about what your options are moving forward because other some people might want to choose to go you know to the IVF or whatever those different routes may be you might want to talk to someone who's decided to go that way and find out if that's what's right for you you know if you're going through depression maybe finding um, a counselor or a support group for people who are depressed and kind of talking to them and working through some of that um, there are so many ways that you can go and get help and find tools to get you to the the next step but but yeah you gotta you gotta put in the work to find those those little nuggets and those treasures so that you can use those tools the things that you'll learn there to take you to that next step wow thank you so much for that you know definitely going to help our listeners really just empower them to really you know take that weight off their shoulders mm-hmm. and really start and you know, find this find peace right i think finding mm-hmm. peace is important mm-hmm. so you know they find a better version of themselves mm-hmm. and you know really uh help others you know pass pass you know that knowledge on to other people so that you yes. know, they don't have to go through the same thing and that's what you're yeah. doing constance mm-hmm. thank you yeah you're never alone yeah mm-hmm. As long as you spark yes. that one mind, that that then I think I definitely think you're gonna spark a lot of minds. But as long as you do spark that one mind, you can change the world. Yes, absolutely. Because you're you're dope. I hope you give yourself high fives every day because what you went through and now what you're doing is totally great, totally amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, Constance, can you let our, our listeners know where they can find you, where they can find your book? All right. Yeah, you can find me at Constance G for Great Jones at Constance G Jones dot uh, com. That's my website. <laughs> um, and then uh, for Instagram, I am Constance dot Constance G dot Jones. And then I have a uh, Facebook. I am Constance Jones. So you can find me on all three of those platforms. Yeah. And check out my book. It's on Amazon, Emerging Butterfly, a memoir by Constance G. Jones. It's also on all the different retail sites as well. So you can find me pretty much anywhere. Oh, and I just released uh, my my audiobook was released yesterday. So I'm excited about that. So now you can get an audio version as well. Oh, that, that's a game changer. That's a game changer. Mm-hmm. And especially mm-hmm. once people start going to work fully, you know, Audible yes. is huge <laughs> on public uh, transportation and subways and et cetera. So that's going to yes. be huge. Yes. Use that technology yes, to help you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Get all those platforms out. So yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much, Constance. And I also want to thank the listeners for tuning in to another episode of the 30 to life podcast you can find us on instagram at 30 to life pod and twitter 30 to life pod as well new episodes every wednesday every wednesday new episodes are released so please sure to subscribe and please please share with a friend this is some great information for this episode and much like other episodes share with a friend and, and and let them experience the 30 to life podcast redefining the black experience so i want to thank constance i want to thank you listeners i want to thank you know just everyone in this world right now just because coronavirus is is, uh, (laughs) changing our world it's changing conversations Um, and you know what we're trying to do is redefine the black experience and that's what we're doing so it's your boy mookie it's your favorite in the color of the world thank you for having me guys i really enjoyed it Oh, it's the guy who just loves everybody. Coolie. Coolie. Uh, 30 to life. We out.